So Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 says this. Um, if you're new to going through the book of Galatians, you'll know that the passage that we've been looking at or the passages that we've been looking at in the book of Galatians, Paul is, is pretty frustrated. He's writing to a group of believers that uh, planted, he planted this church several years earlier. Uh, it was a great ministry. A lot of great things were happening. Uh, this church was predominantly non-Jewish or the particular word that most of you might, might be familiar with is Gentile. These were Gentile people. They did not have any background in Judaism. They didn't have any background in who Moses was. They didn't know what the Ten Commandments were. They were just straight up pagan, um, non-God-honoring Gentiles that God saved. And so what you saw were these like pockets of Christianity uh, growing up in these very organic ways all around this area called Asia Minor. And what was happening were uh, basically these churches were just mushrooming all over the place. People were getting saved. People were coming to know Jesus. Their lives were being transformed. Their lives were being changed. And then what ended up happening was there was this group of people from Jerusalem. Uh, Paul calls them Judaizers. The, what these were is these were sort of itinerant preachers with a vendetta. Their vendetta was kill Paul and everything Paul says. That was their, that was their sole purpose in life was to just defame Paul and correct everything that Paul fails to do in and of his own ministry. That was their, their sole purpose. Everywhere Paul went, planted churches, these guys were about four or five paces behind. And they were basically trying to unravel everything Paul was doing. And the way that they were trying to unravel everything Paul was doing was to try to discredit Paul and try to discredit Paul's message. So the way that they did this in these Galatian churches was they went in there and said, you know what, Paul preached to you guys kind of a neutered version of the gospel. Told you about Jesus, but didn't tell you what you need to do for Jesus. So he, didn't, he forgot to tell you that you guys, being Gentiles, <clears throat> the way that you get right with God <clears throat> is you become cultural Jews. Meaning, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to uh, eat kosher. You've got to dress like Jews. You've got to dress like us. You've got to have your hair cut like us. Uh, you've got to wear certain clothes the way that we wear our certain clothes. You've got to worship the way that we do. You've got to keep the same type of Sabbath days that we do. You've got to worship on the same holy days that we do. And if you don't, then you're not right with God. So this whole issue of what it means to be right with God is the central theme of the book of Galatians. Uh, you guys remember the big word? Big theological word for what it means to be right with God? You guys are awesome. Big group power right now. You guys remember that word. Good job. Justified. It means justified. When we say the word justified, it means the process, the act by which we are made right with God. And so the whole central theme of the book of Galatians is how a person is made right with God. <clears throat> These Judaizers were saying, you're made right with God by trusting Jesus and being culturally Jewish. Paul's saying, you're partially right. Trusting Jesus, if you would have put a period there and not a comma, you'd be fine. But the problem is, is you didn't put a period there and you've continued to add on to that. Paul says, that's where I have a problem. Paul's argument now is going to begin to take on a more theological basis, a more historical basis. And what he's going to do now, he's going to talk about how Abraham actually was his quintessential example as to how God intervened in Abraham's life and how God made Abraham right with God. You know that, just, uh, that Abraham was justified before God. God declared Abraham just. He looked at this pagan idol-worshiping guy by the name of Abraham who lived in an area called Ur the Chaldeans or otherwise known as Babylon and he looked at him and said you're just you're made right with me we have a right relationship between each other 
And so Paul's going to now use Abraham and introduce him into the argument and say, you know, look, you guys are, you know, you, you guys are allowing your minds to be tainted by the message of these Judaizers. When in reality, don't you know that the same way that you're made right with God is the same way that Abraham was made right with God? Don't let these guys pervert and destroy the message that I preached to you. So with that being said, Paul's going to use some really strong language. So he's writing to these people now, and he starts off this little section here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. This is not the way to win friends, influence people, and have a good relationship with people. But Paul's frustrated, and I think rightfully so. He's rightly frustrated because what's gone on is these people have just basically made actions that are very foolish. That's, the Paul, that's Paul's whole point. And he goes on and says, who has bewitched you? Now, Paul's going to ask a series of questions. Now, in this series of questions, a lot of them are just sort of hypothetical questions, not really demanding any response back, but Paul wants us to think about these things. So he asks these people, who's bewitched you? And the word bewitched is the only time that it appears in the entire Bible. And it basically means, who's cast a spell on you guys? It's like someone came in and cast a spell on you guys. You guys aren't thinking clearly. Your brain is not just processing information properly. If you guys started out in Jesus, and you still have Jesus, and used to have this relationship with Christ, whereby God initiated all this great work on behalf of you, for you, and you guys are recipients of this great work that God's done in you, then why are you guys not turning to something beyond Jesus? Don't you know that Jesus is enough? Paul's like, you guys, you guys are acting very foolishly. It's like as if someone came in and cast a curse on you, and you guys are just not thinking properly. He says, who's bewitched you? He says, it was before... It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, a lot of scholars hear this, publicly portrayed as crucified. A lot of scholars have kind of wondered about this. And they've, they've looked at this and thought, you know what? Um, these people to whom Paul's writing to were not in Jerusalem. None of them were Jews. None of them had any relationship probably with Jerusalem. So a lot of them weren't even around when Jesus was crucified. So a lot of them wondered, like, how is it possible that these guys actually saw Jesus portrayed as crucified? This kind of led to a lot of speculation. There's two major ways by which scholars have kind of viewed this. One, some people have actually thought that Paul actually drew a picture of what crucifixion looks like. It's very probable, very possible. Imagine that. Paul using some form of multimedia to basically say, you guys didn't see Jesus die, but I'm going to draw a picture for you. I want you guys to see what it looks like. This is sort of the idea. So I don't know, maybe there's somebody there that drew a picture, kind of depicted what it looked like, and so Paul's now saying, you guys saw Jesus portrayed before you. You saw what it looked like. Uh, others have actually looked at it and thought, well, maybe what Paul's referencing is that you saw Jesus portrayed as a reference to, you guys finally got it. You, you actually, you didn't just hear about it, but you actually saw it. You might say, uh, the eyes of our heart were open. We saw something on a deeper level. I'll give you an example. For me personally, <clears throat> I was brought up in the Catholic Church. My whole life, I went to church. I, don't, I, I remember maybe, I can count on one hand, the times I didn't go to church growing up as a kid. It's because I was sick. All right, that was it. And when I stayed home, I watched like Davy and Goliath. You guys remember that? It was claymation, and that was about it. But the rest of my entire life, I, I grew up going to the Catholic church. I, I knew about God. I went through all the typical training that good Catholic uh, kids would do. Uh, I was in Catholic group. Um, I never questioned the existence of God. I never wondered, does God exist? I never doubted his existence. I always believed that Jesus existed. Never. I, I can never go back in my mind and thought I was an agnostic, I was an atheist. I never struggled with that. That was never an issue for me. But the reality was, when I was around 15 years old, something happened in my life whereby 
all this knowledge about God was trans- transformed in my life to where now I didn't just know about God, I actually knew God. Something happened in my life where it's as if God was in open display for me. Like before I knew him, I saw him, I understood theoretically who he was, what he was like. I didn't ever question, I never disbelieved it. But something happened right when I was around 15 years old, almost turned 16, that God just opened my eyes. I saw Christ as it publicly displayed in my own mind, and I trusted it. That's really what conversion is. Because some of you guys might have had this similar type of experience. You may be brought up in a church, maybe you had good Christian parents, loved Jesus, a grandma that prayed for you all the time. Your guys' holidays were surrounded by certain types of Christian culture and whatnot. But maybe you never really lived it. Maybe there was a moment in your life where your eyes were just opened, and you saw Jesus. As if you just saw him, like that in a real physical, tangible way. But you saw him as if you loved him. You realized that he existed. And it wasn't just that um, you disbelieved him before, but it's as if something happened in your life whereby you went from knowing about God to actually saying, I I, I think I know God. I actually know God. I'm not just an acquaintance with God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I have a relationship with God. That's what some scholars believe that Paul is kind of referencing. So he goes on, and he says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, a lot of you guys' Bible translation doesn't say Holy Spirit, but it, it does indicate the word Spirit with the capital letter. Okay? In the Greek, there, there is no capital, lowercase. Uh, this was sort of added by the authors, or those who translated this. They looked at this and they assumed that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So he's referencing saying, you guys receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. We'll talk more about this next week. So I asked the question, um, how did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? It's because you guys worked for it? Because you were religious? Because you acted religious? Because you guys kept kosher food? Um, and is that, is that the way that you guys received the Holy Spirit? Because you ate kosher? You dressed particular uh, Jewish culture? Is that how you guys receive the Holy Spirit? See, this is really important. I mean, think about this. If, if the way that you were made right with God, for example, is by eating kosher. In other words, eating kosher meant you receive the Holy Spirit, now you're made right with God. What would happen if someday you go to a party and they don't have kosher food and you eat pork ribs? All right, does that mean you now lose your salvation? Does that now mean that you've lost favor with God? Does that mean that you are now going to be a sausage on God's barbecue? For all eternity. Will you go to hell because of that? So that's what it has to mean. Because if it means that we're made right with God by what we do for God, that means the way that we continue to be made right with God is by what we continue to do for God. It's actually a very dangerous path to go down. And the people that try to associate to God based upon legalities or legalism or standards of right or wrong, saying, I do this before God, therefore I'm right with God. Paul's whole argument, and he's going to get into this even more fine-tuned throughout the rest of the book, he's going to say it just doesn't make any sense. Because if you're going to try to associate with God or relate with God on the basis of legalism, then you, gotta, you, you, you can't just make up your own rules by which you're going to associate with God. You, don't, you can't just do that. You can't just be like, look, I choose these five rules by which God will accept me. All right, read my Bible every day, go to a good church, and I'll wear my hair in a bun, and I'll make sure I marry a guy that, you know, his name is Zedekiah, all right? And, and, and we will never use technology. I mean, you, you can't just somehow make these rules up and be like, if I follow these, then, then I'll be all right with God. You, you don't have, the, you don't have the, the opportunity of doing that. You have to come to God on his basis. 
And God basically says, look, there's a whole lot more than five rules to follow. I mean, ancient Jews basically recognized there might be upwards of 613, 614 rules to live by. And if you fail any of those rules, you failed in all of them. So the point of the matter is, is the legalist really is just hypocritical. It's very hypocritical. So Paul's whole point is that at the end of the day, the way that you were made right with God, the way that you received the Holy Spirit was not on the basis of the works of the law, but it was on the hearing of faith, meaning you trusted God. You trusted God. You heard the message. You heard what Paul preached to you, is what he's saying to these Galatians. You guys heard what I said to you. You guys believed it. You heard me talk to you about Jesus who died for your sin, who rose again from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who actually loves you. He loves you. You heard that message, and you believed, and you trusted God, and your lives were changed. But he's like, I'm really frustrated with you guys, because after you believed, it says if you guys are trying to add more things to your life, here's what he goes on to say. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? It's a really important question. Again, like I said, we'll clamp down on this more so next week. But the word perfected can also mean be made complete. In a lot of ways, Paul's very insightful here. Because Paul understands something of the human psyche. And then let me put it this way. Paul actually understands that for the most part of all humanity, we are all looking for some sort of means by which to be made complete. Every, every single one of us. The reason why we do things is to be made complete. The reason why some of us avoid certain things is because we think that's the way by which we'll be made complete. I'll give an example. Let's say you're some dude, really macho, you want to fight, you're a brawler, you like to argue, you want people to see your point of view, and so you, by way of trying to be made complete, because you feel the way that you can be complete is if everybody affirms you. When people don't affirm you, you get very upset. You get at, uh, you know, you're not at ease, you're not at rest, you're very incomplete. So the way that you feel completeness is when everybody affirms you, when everybody recognizes you, when everybody acknowledges you. So you go out and you try as very hard as you can to make sure that everybody affirms you. You're trying to find completeness. You might be somebody, flip side, who's the complete opposite. You don't like hanging out with a lot of people. You're very antisocial. You don't like spending a lot of time with people. You get very uncomfortable. You get very uh, discomforted in a group of large, a large group of people. So you avoid people. Why? Because in your heart, you feel being with people undoes you. Un, 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 it, it makes you, leaves you undone. It leaves you feeling very awkward, very, feeling very vulnerable, and very incomplete. So the way that you feel completeness is by avoiding people. Going in your own little world, reading a book, avoiding social circumstances, so that you can just run and hide. You're trying to find completeness. If you're somebody, uh, we've said this over the past few weeks a lot, if you're somebody that's driven according to your work, you want to work hard because you know that somewhere within the good work ethic, you feel very complete. You can lay your head on your pillow at night and feel really good. There's nothing wrong with working really hard and having a sense of accomplishment after a really good, hard, long days of work. The flip side is if all you do is lay around all day, still in your pajamas, and it's 1 o'clock and you've been playing video games all day long, that's, that's not good. That's really not good. You, you should consider getting alive. But some others who are very driven and want to live that particular lifestyle, they do those things because they want to be complete. They want to be complete. So here's what Paul's basically saying, is that there is a path to completeness. It's through Jesus. Really, Jesus is the answer to what all of us are trying hard and utilizing all sorts of alternative means to get to. Completeness. 
Paul says there is a completeness that's actually found through Jesus. And this is why Paul is absolutely blown away by this. He's just thinking this is absolutely absurd. Because you guys have come to Jesus and you found completeness in Jesus, but these guys came in from the outside and they're saying, you know, you're not completely finished yet in Jesus. Here's what you need, these five or six other things. And Paul's like, you guys are trying to find completeness beyond what Jesus has already done. He's like, this is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. If Jesus has already offered completeness to you, do you think that you can become even more complete in Jesus by keeping kosher? Do you think you can be even more complete by acting religious? Do you think you can actually even more so seal the deal if you do all these like little rules and restrictions and regulations? You really think you can add something to what was already accomplished on the cross? Paul's like, it's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. You guys are literally going back. Here's Paul's main concern. You guys are actually going back to another form of slavery. This is really important, guys. Paul's main concern is that I'm, I'm very concerned that you guys are going back into another form of slavery. Before you came to Jesus, you were a slave to sin. Now that you're in Christ, you're actually going back into a slavery of religion. Paul's like, it's really bad. Slavery is slavery. It doesn't matter if your slave owner is, you know, evil, wicked, meth addict type, type thing, dark, evil, wicked, or if the slave owner is nice, sanitized, clean, religious, and everything looks really good. Paul's like, a slavery is slavery, unless... You are a slave to God. And God's a great master. He's a loving master. He's benevolent. He's very caring. We've said this many times. God, unlike other slave masters, he doesn't take from us. He gives himself to us. God doesn't exploit us. He actually protects us. God doesn't leave us feeling defiled. He actually takes away our defilement. So he's a very good slave master who actually loves us and is willing to lay his life down for us. So again, really everything goes back to this issue of are we complete? Do we feel something else? I mean, honestly, you guys, just look at it this way. Ask yourself this question. Are you complete tonight? Can you look at your life right now, inspect yourself right now and say, I'm complete. Not perfect. I'm not saying perfect. I'm saying complete. Are there other things that tonight you look at your life and like, well, I'll be complete if I get this, if I have this, if this is a part of the sphere of my life? That's the issue here. Because all of us, all of us fall prey into this myth that somehow, some way, we can get completeness by something other than God. Religious people do the same thing. Only difference with religious people is they sanitize it, they use religious language, they talk about God. But here's basically at the end of the day, way religious people work this whole system is they say, we pray. We go to church, we help out at church, we tie their money, we do all these good things, we tip our hats off to old ladies crossing the street. We do everything we can because we love God. And we pray to God, we pray that God will give us a good life now, that God will give us a family, that God will bless us with good riches, that God will take care of us, that God will give us prosperity, God will give us wealth, God will give us health. And they sanitize it really at the end of the day you're just using God to get to that which is really complete in your mind. God just becomes sort of this means to something. He's not your end. He's not your completion. So really this concept is relevant for every single one of us. So Paul says, I'm just baffled because you guys are actually trying to find completeness 
beyond where completeness exists in Christ. He goes on and says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you uh, do so by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Again, we'll come back to this next week. It says, just as Abraham. So some of your translations might say, consider Abraham. So verse 6, he introduces a brand new character to his entire message, his letter. It's Abraham. He says, just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So tonight, basically, three things we're going to take a look at. First of all, we're going to take a look at Abraham. We're going to consider who Abraham is. Uh, Paul assumes uh, his audience, to whom he's writing, knows who Abraham is. Probably because Paul spent a legitimate amount of time with them, talking with them about Old Testament saints and what God had done in his plan of salvation. So these people were probably, for the most part, familiar with Abraham. I don't want to assume that tonight, so we're going to take some time to take a look at who Abraham is. The second thing we'll take a look at about verse 7, it says this, Know then that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. So in other words, he's going to now talk about who are the true legitimate sons of Abraham. Paul's answer, straight up, is those who are of faith. Those who, just like Abraham, believed God. So the true sons of Abraham are those who actually trust and believe God. Now why this is significant is because, you know, that there's three major world religions in the world today that dominate the world. You add up the numbers of these three major world religions and you have probably the majority of the population on the planet. Islam, uh, Christianity, and Judaism all actually trace their roots back to Abraham. It's very important. So Abraham is a very important subject. He's an important guy in terms of this whole larger concept of faith. So these three major world religions are actually all more or less saying, we're all sons of Abraham. Now, obviously Christians are a little bit different than Muslims. Muslims are a little bit different than Jews. Um, and yet they all claim to be legitimate sons of Abraham. So there's some clarification that's got to go on. And the final thing we'll take a look at takes, about, takes place about verse 8. And it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he's going to basically now uh, try to bring some congruency between his argument that he's proposing to this Galatian church uh, to the Old Testament. And the reason why he does this it's because these Judaizers that were coming along were basically saying, Paul's starting a brand new religion. <laughs> Paul is not faithful to Moses. Paul is not faithful to the Old Testament. Paul is not faithful to God. That's what they're saying. And Paul's like, no, actually, I'm, I'm very faithful to Moses. I'm very faithful to the Old Testament. And I'm very faithful to God and his intent. You guys aren't faithful to God. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to bring about some congruency between the Old Testament and this new covenant that was basically forged in Jesus' blood, and say, I'm not creating a new religion. In fact, I'm talking about how what Christ did, he completed what began 2,500 years ago. That's what Paul's whole point. So with that being said, let's take a look, first of all, at Abraham. We'll consider Abraham, and now you'll see my first slide. We're going to talk about Abraham, all right? I know. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Abraham, who Abraham is and was. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 basically initiates the whole dialogue, the whole discussion, the whole narrative about Abraham. So what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 12, we see the first beginning stages of who this guy Abram was. Starts out, his name is Abram. God comes to Abram and says, Abram, um, I want to bless you. I want to pour out and shower blessings upon you beyond what you can even comprehend and imagine. This is really important because a lot of the Jewish people in Paul's day were saying, well, we trace our lineage back to Abraham. Abraham is our man. 
he, he, was, he was Jewish just like us. And here's Paul's whole point. Abraham was actually idol-worshiping pagan. He lived in Babylon, of all places. I mean, Babylon, of all cities that have ever existed, is the one city in the entire Bible that's basically depicted as, as evil incarnate. I mean, it is kind of like a fuller version of Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? So Babylon is depicted as sort of evil incarnate. It's depicted as everything that is in opposition to God. If you were to take God and invert him, you'd get Babylon. It's the idea. So where does God go to find his servant? Where does God go to find the guy that is going to be literally the recipient of all of the rich blessings of God? God goes to the darkest place on the planet that's full of pagans and finds the worst of them and calls them and says, Will you follow me? I mean, this is, I find a lot of hope in this. Because again, a lot of times Christianity, Christians, or even the world looks at Christianity and think, well, Christianity is for good people. You know, God goes to the righteous people. No, he actually doesn't. God goes to the worst of the worst. I mean, Jesus put it this way. He says, the physician comes, and he's here not to heal the people that are doing good. He's here to heal the people that are really sick. Those that have need of a physician. That's what I'm here for. So the people that actually find relationship with Christ are those that are messed up. You know, people love to use this as your argument. I think it's a silly argument. They're like, you know, you guys Christians, you Christians view Christianity as like a crutch. Well, crutches are great for people that are crippled. I'm crippled. I'm pretty messed up. I need help. I don't have a problem admitting that. Hopefully you don't either. But that's the point. Is a lot of people live in this illusion, we're not crippled. We're all good. Our bank account's full, our life is rich, everything's great, but it's all an illusion, all right? Because you're going to get sick someday, you're going to lose your money someday, you're going to get married someday, and your spouse might want to divorce you someday, you're going to end up, and if none of that happens to you, you're going to have kids someday. I'll give you a little secret. Kids are an amazing blessing, but they don't come perfect, all right? You tell them one thing, and they resist. They fight. They stare you in the face, and as cute as they are, they say a two-letter word, no. They absolutely defy your authority, all right? As great as they are, you will find yourself one day just wrecked. In this nice, fancy, cute little life, you will actually begin to realize you are crippled. Blessed are the meek, all right? Those people actually admit to the fact, I'm broken. I'm barren. My garden isn't as, as beautiful as I thought it was. My bank account is not as huge as I had expected or as hoped it would to be. My life is not as rich and lasting and strong as I had hoped it would be. I'm actually quite fragile. And so the point that I would make is that God goes to the darkest most desperate, most broken places and finds people that the world would never look at and say, you should choose him. That's not what God does. God goes to the worst of the worst and says, I'll choose you. So God goes to Abraham and he calls him, says, I will bless you. Next slide. It goes on and say in verse four, Abram left as God told him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, taking with him his wife Sarai, and his, uh, his nephew Lot and all of the possessions that they had accumulated in Haran and all the people that they had acquired. Next slide. 
And then in verse 7, he basically uh, stands there with Abram and looks at this huge lot of land, and he says, this is your inheritance. I will bless you beyond what you can imagine. You can't even begin to fathom all that I'm going to bless you with. Next slide. And then one of the greatest tests that ends up happening, God ends up giving Abram a son. His son's name is Isaac. And God basically says, through Isaac, I will bless all the nations. So, and again, you got to understand, you got to think sort of patriarchal a little bit in your mind to fully comprehend and understand the story of Abraham. Because the way that God was going to facilitate or bring about his blessings was going to be through his heir. That's just the way God always worked. That's the way people thought back in that day. So, back in that culture, what would you think the most valuable possession you could have would be? It would be a son. The most important thing. I mean, everything was literally dependent upon a son. So if you were a dad, the greatest gift that you can have in all the world would be a son. If you were a woman, the greatest joy in all the earth would be to give birth to a son. You know, no offense to you women, but you just got to understand, back in that culture, back in that day, and again, sometimes people look at it and they're like, man, that was very offensive and oppressive that people put all this oppression upon women, you know, have babies, particularly sons. Look, I've said this before. The reality is, is that every culture, every generation has always set certain standards and values and placed them upon all people, usually the weakest people and those that oftentimes are most vulnerable to oppression, women. And they say, well, man, it's just unfair that women were forced to basically give birth to a son. That's very difficult. That's a lot to bear. That's very oppressive and hurtful for women. But the reality is, we have our own types of oppressive behavior even in our own culture. In our culture today, it's not making sure that a woman has a baby. It's making sure that if, you have a, if you're a woman you have a baby, that immediately as soon as you're done having a baby, you get your, you know, you get your bottom back into you know, a nice pair of size 7 pants, size 6 pants. Don't go too long. I mean, if you're size 11, 12, whatever, man, you better repent and somehow change your life because you're absolutely out of sync with culture and society, and you're not living within the value system. That, to me, is oppressive. That's one of the reasons why women oftentimes struggle with eating disorders. I mean, they didn't do that back in the day. They do that today because this oppression of the culture, of the value system upon people saying, it's not having a son. It's if you're going to have a baby, make sure you lose the weight very quickly because all your value is in who you look like and what you look like and how skinny you are. All right, you guys, so the point I would make is that all systems have their own form of oppression. Back in that day, it was having a son. So Abraham has a son. His whole life is literally wound up in his son. He loves his boy. He also knows that his son is also the promise of God. So his son is a good thing. Is there anything wrong with Abraham loving his son? That's a great thing. Is there anything wrong with Abraham looking forward to the work that God's going to do through his son? No, it's great. It's all part of God's plan. But one of the things that God wants to make certain in Abraham's life is that God is foremost in his life, not his son. That this good thing that Abraham has doesn't become in the place of God. This is the important aspect we talk about a lot here with regard to idols. Idols, for the most part, are not usually evil things. Idols are usually very good things. They're very good things that we like. Food, it's a great thing. We love food, right? We just ate a lot of it on Thursday. It was amazing. A lot of great food. But if you eat too much, basically your belly becomes your God. If you eat too much, your God gets very big. Two of you got that. The point that I would make is that usually our idols are good things that end up becoming things that have this inordinate power over us. Sex is a good thing. If you love sex too much, 
you become a pervert. You can't stop going on the internet because you need it. You're in control of, or it's in control of you. So the point that I would make is that usually our idols start out as being very good things, gifts from God, but they end up becoming something that we put all this value in them above and beyond God himself. So they actually become elevated higher than God. And so God basically puts uh, Abram to the test, and he says to him in chapter 22, go back to the verse before that. Um, I'll start from here. All right. No, 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 go back. Oh, man, you guys have seen all my good slides. Go back. Can we go back? There we go, there we go. Okay, verse 1. So it says, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Next slide. <laughs> all right. He says in verse 2, he says, then he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Mor- Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. So Abraham... Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and he took two of the young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He rose and he went to the place to which God had told him. So there we got Isaac on the back of a donkey, I guess, or something like that, or rhino slash donkey or something. And uh, they're on their way to the spot of Mount Moriah, and he's going to offer him as, as a sacrifice. Next slide. And in verse, 22, or, uh, verse 9 of chapter 22 says this, And when they came to the place... Of which God had told him, Abraham had built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him, and he said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So God basically says, now I know, I know, you've proven to me that I am your treasure. Your son is not your treasure. Your son is a treasure. He's not the ultimate treasure. That's the important thing. So basically, the next slide, what we begin to see now as we kind of move on to this next little section here is we see the importance of Abraham. We'll talk about this in a second. But Abraham is an important character in the Bible because Abraham basically depicts a guy who comes before Jesus came and he's made right with God by trusting God. All right, so the greatest way by which Abraham honored God. All right, let me try to put it to you guys in a different term. The way that you honor God is you trust him. When God says something to you, you trust him. You live according to it. You abide according to it. That's the way that we honor God. So Abraham honored God by trusting God. So when God said, follow me, Abraham said, I'll follow you. When God said, leave your land, your place, your home, your family, and follow me to a place you have no idea where I'm taking you? Abraham did. He left Babylon. He left his father's house. He left some of his goods, and he brought the rest of them with him, and he traveled across country, across wilderness, across desert, to the place of the land of Canaan. So he honored God. And basically the text tells us it was through this action, through this account of Abraham trusting God, that it was credited to him as made, being made righteous, that he was made just, or in a right relationship with God. This plays into the heart of Paul's argument. Because Paul's basically saying, look, you guys, you Judaizers, are constantly drawing attention back to Abraham, and you're using Abraham as sort of the quintessential argument for the Gentile people saying, Here's, you, know, you should follow Abraham. You know, Abraham was kosher. Abraham did all these things. And Paul's basically saying, look, don't you remember? Our forefather Abraham was made right with God even before the law was established, even before Moses lived, 
even before Ten Commandments were given, even before the sacrificial system was set up, even before kosher living was, was instituted, even before all the rights, rules, and regulations, holy days were all established, Abraham was made right with me before all the stuff took place. So Paul was like, look, just, just reason this out. Think it through. God makes you right with himself. Not through the means and the ways that you're being communicated. Uh, let me put it this way. A lot of times we just make things way too complicated. We just do. Because I think to some degree, more or less, we want to boast. In our hearts, we want to take some credit. We're like, ah, you know, I'm in heaven. I'm with God. I'm in the right relationship with God. Because after all, I pray a lot. Or, you know, after all, I got this huge, huge list of people that I led to Jesus. We want to take some credit for that. We want a little bit of that sugar given back to us. We want people to come up to us and recognize us and love us, stroke us, honor us, pat us on the back. And Paul's point is that, man, you're not getting it. If God were to receive you on the basis of what you've done, then you get the glory, not God. That actually reverses the order. God says, I want the glory. The one who gives the gift is the one who gets the glory. And God's like, or Paul's whole argument is that if you basically have earned some sort of means by which God has now blessed you, you can boast, and you're the one that gets all the credit and glory, and God is just your wage giver. I mean, you're kind of in a, in a relationship with God where he's, he's your boss. You work for him, he pays you a wage, you go home. I mean, that's his whole argument in Romans. But his, his point that he keeps going back to again and again, salvation is actually a gift from God. God gives it to you because he loves you. God offers it to you because he cares for you. And because Jesus is, uh, is acted on behalf of God by way of uh, taking care of God's judgment, but also demonstrating his love at the same time. A double action happened on the cross. Judgment was held and handled, but love was greatly displayed all for free for us but it cost God everything you got to know this so Paul's now going to talk about the others that are also sons and daughters of Abraham okay now the point that I want to make with regard to this is that this is a big subject in the early test in the new testament a lot of people are asking the question so who really actually can lay claim to Abraham as being our father it's a big question and you read about a lot of this going on even in the New Testament during the time of Jesus. People are always asking the question, so who are the legitimate sons of Abraham? You know, the religious leaders were like, well, those that are of blood, those actually that have followed Abraham, or I should say that actually birthed into the family are the true legitimate sons and daughters of Abraham. Those who live kosher, those who live Juda uh, Judaistic type lifestyles, those are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. So you can understand why the message that Paul was preaching to a bunch of Gentile people, you know, 5,000 miles away from Jerusalem, were having a really hard time with this. Because Paul's basically going out there and saying, look, you guys are sons and daughters of Abraham. You were never circumcised. I will never touch your private parts with a knife. I will never circumcise you. I will never force you to eat kosher. I will never tell you to dress a particular Jewish cultural way. And you're made right with God. So the Judaizers that had the knife applied to them these Judaizers that live this stringent lifestyle of laws are really frustrated. Religious people are really frustrated people. And they're frustrating. 
they come across and they, because in a lot of ways, they are frustrated with the lifestyle they live. Because misery loves company, because they're miserable, they want everybody else to be miserable. Man, if you had to be circumcised, and you had to endure that pain, wouldn't you want everybody else to endure that same pain? I mean, if you got the scar of that, if you had to, you know, eat kosher and live a particular lifestyle, live a particular thing, and you hate it, you resent it, you'd want everybody else to live that way, because misery loves company. So Paul is now going to address and ask the question, really, who are the true legitimate sons of Abraham? So with that, I want to take a look at three things very quickly, summarize them. First of which, take a look at, Abra- um, take a look at John the Baptist. All right, that is actually legitimately John the Baptist. He's got a nice stash. Anyways, that head floating around, I, I think, is actually someone being baptized and not just the head floating around. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 says this. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happening with, with um, John the Baptist. He was a preacher uh, that came out a little bit before Jesus started his public ministry. He was actually the cousin of Jesus. So John the Baptist was sort of this radical guy. He went out in the wilderness. He was actually, uh, his father was a Levite, meaning that his, he was brought into the family of religious leaders. Um, John the Baptist never went that way of ministry in terms of working with the temple. Instead, John went out into the wilderness and was preaching the gospel, basically telling people, repent, because God's kingdom is very near. And so what he was basically trying to communicate to the convey to the religious culture and system of first century Judaism was that, look, God, God's coming. And, and, and God's going to bring judgment, but God will also restore people. And the way that God does this, the way this exchange happens is you repent from your sins. Meaning you recognize the fact, like I said earlier, that you're crippled. You got issues. You got problems. And so John was saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to baptize you guys. And baptism is a symbol of you basically subjecting yourself to the grave and dying to your past life and living to a new life. And so literally hundreds, it was believed to be thousands and thousands of people followed John out into the wilderness, out into the desert area, down to the area of the Jordan, and they were baptized. It was a radical revival that was going on. It was an amazing thing that was happening. Now, a lot of the people that were being baptized, ironically enough, were Jews, which is pretty, pretty interesting when you consider this. These were Jews that were raised up in sort of a Jewish household. These were Jews that were familiar with the scriptures. These were Jews that were familiar with Torah, Moses, the law, Ten Commandments, all these other things. But somewhere in their life, they recognized there's an incompleteness, something that's not whole inside of us. And what they began to realize, what was not whole inside of them, was that they were not in right relationship with God. So they repented of their sin, they were baptized. A lot of people were, were being transformed. Now the religious leaders end up showing up. And again, these guys were, in their minds, the legitimate sons of Abraham. So when they hear John's message about preaching repentance, in their mind they're like, we don't need to repent. <laughs> we're sons of Abraham. I mean, we are in right relationship with God. What do we got to repent from? Let me give an example of what I mean. When I was 15 years old, I mentioned earlier, that was when I became a Christian, just before I turned 16, a few years, or a few months before I turned 16. And what had happened was, when I became a Christian, probably about halfway into my 16th year, life, somewhere around there, I got baptized. And uh, I was growing my, my faith with Christ and loving God, and someone came to me and says, have you been baptized? So I think probably somewhere around, more legitimately, around 17 years old, I got baptized. Now, I'm from a very strong Catholic family. All my family relatives are very strong Catholic. Um, when I got married at age 20, um, and I told my grandma, who's hardcore Catholic, 
uh, that I'm getting married. The very first question she asked me is, is she Catholic? And when I said no, she said, we won't come to the wedding. And that's how hardcore it was. She was just like, we're not interested. We, we don't care about who she is. We don't care if she's a drug addict, prostitute. As long as she's a Catholic, then we're all good. It was really kind of a crazy scenario. But when I realized I, I wanted to get baptized, I remember talking to my grandma again and saying, hey, I'm going to be baptized. My grandma was just like, why? You were already baptized. You're, you're already in a right relationship with God. I'm like, actually, I'm not in a right relationship with God. I remember even having dialogue with my dad about this. My dad was hardcore, strong Catholic as well. My dad's like, you know, son, you've always been a Christian. I'm like, dad, I was like getting wasted when I was like 13, 14 years old, getting drunk, and I was, I was not a Christian. I was not a Christian at all. My dad's like, yeah, you were a Christian. You were baptized. I'm like, I, I, okay, I, I, I concede I was baptized, but I was not a Christian. All right, now that I'm a Christian, I want to be baptized. My family just were resistant to that. They could not swallow the fact that I wanted to be baptized. Because in their minds, they're like, you're already baptized as a baby. You don't need to be rebaptized. Because you're, you're already in. You're already good. Everything's legitimate between you and God. And so the point that I would make is that that's kind of what's going on with these guys. Is here they are, standing on the side of the water, looking at all these hundreds, perhaps thousands of people being transformed, crying tears of joy, loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, actually living the Christian walk out. And they're really frustrated because they're like, what's all this emotion, excitement? You know, we're already sons of Abraham. And here's what John says. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's actually able to raise up stones, to raise up these stones, to raise them up as children of Abraham, to raise these stones up as his own children. So his whole point is that, look, don't sit there with this arrogance that assumes you know, we're in the system. We belong to Judaism. We're in the club. We belong to the tribe. Therefore, we're all good. And the whole point of John the Baptist's message is, you guys are being presumptuous. Don't you know that God doesn't need you? He really doesn't. God can actually make a stone come to life if he wanted to, and that will become a son and daughter. He doesn't need you. And here's the point that I would make. Some of you guys were brought up in good Christian homes. Some of you weren't. The danger, I would say, for those of you that were brought up in a home that was Christian or a Christian environment, the danger for you is to presume. That's your danger. My senior year in high school, my dad really wanted to put me into a Christian school. Um, I was a Christian now for about two years. I was super excited. I was excited about going to my senior year of high school sharing the gospel, preaching Christ. I was excited about starting a Bible study. I'd actually started one my junior year of high school. It was growing. A lot of great things were happening on my campus. I was stoked. I grew up in Huntington Beach and went to a school called Ocean View High School. A lot of great things that were happening. My senior year in high school, my dad's like, you know, I really want to send you to, Catholic, or to a Christian school. So I went to a Christian school. Honestly, it was probably the worst experience of my life. And I'll tell you why. I went there actually thinking I'm going to be hanging out with a bunch of Christians all the time. I showed up thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. People are going to like worship God together. We're going to pray. We're going to fellowship. We can actually be in class. Every class started off with prayer. At first, I'm like, this is going to be actually kind of cool. Finally, once I got there, I started realizing, like, I remember the very first time I went to one of these chapels, all right? And it was sort of this bent that was kind of like Christian television type bent. So like the chapel services were all very ornate and people had their hair combed back and they looked kind of monkey and stuff and but the point that I would make is that 
it was very interesting to me because I remember seeing the guy that prayed in chapel was that particular day was also the guy the week after that, that got kicked out of school for smoking pot in the boys' room. I'm like, this is just trippy. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this existed. I, mean, I, I didn't know that there were people that actually claimed to have a relationship with God, but really don't. I mean, for me, I came from a Catholic background. I didn't know God. I knew about God. But I had a radical transformational experience where I, I met God. I loved God. I wanted to be with God. I wanted to be with God's people. So the point that I would make that's you, for something for you guys to think about, if you were brought up in a family or part of a Christian environment, you need to not just presume that you and God are in a right relationship with each other. That's what the religious leaders were doing. That's what religious people do. They presume upon things a lot. And so John's point is that true sons and daughters of Abraham are not those that are presuming upon the relationship. But those that actually have faith, those that trust God, those that have a living, acting faith that loves God. Take a look at the next story. This is about a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Kind of an interesting story. It says in Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered the region of Jericho and he was passing through and there's a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, for a lot of us, we read this, and uh, the, the narrative just doesn't jump out and hit us the way it would in the first century. When you read little phrases like, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, uh, that would immediately play into the whole storyline. And the whole storyline would kind of change a little bit, because if we were to be reading this in a storyline today, you might say, and he was a homosexual, and he was extremely filthy rich, and he had like black slaves. It would change the story. We'd be like, what a jerk. Hope this guy dies and goes to hell, all right, if you're from this background. And so Luke's telling this story, and he's like, he's a chief tax collector, meaning he's a traitor. He, 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 he might be Jewish, but he takes money from Jews and gives it to their enemy, which in this case would be Caesar. And not only that, but he's extremely rich. So in a culture where uh, you have a very, very high class and you have a very, very impoverished class, if you were in the high class you're the enemy of everybody. Everybody hates you. And that's who this guy Zacchaeus is. So Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is. And there's one more thing that Luke tells us that's kind of a problem in the story. He says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short. So he adds into this, not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, rich, but he's got this third thing against him. He's really short. So it says, so he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree, to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Jesus is walking by. Zacchaeus is really short. He's a rich guy. He's got a lot of money. He's a tax collector. He climbs up in the tree to see Jesus. Next slide. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus basically invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and says, I'm really hungry. How about you make me a meal? So, so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. I love the way this story goes. I mean, just like, oh, this is amazing. This could actually have a good ending, right? Um, here's this guy, Zacchaeus. Everybody hates him. He's kind of a, a standout. Nobody really likes this type of guy because not only does he take money from his good people, uh, but he's also some guy that's really rich. And so now what ends up happening is, again, you kind of hear sort of the, uh, the minor tones now starting to play in the background. And, of course, with all this, you end up having the religious leader come in. These guys always know how to spoil a good party. They come in, they act very religious, act very astute, and says this. And when all the religious leaders saw it, they grumbled. That's what they do, they grumble. 
They're always unhappy. It doesn't matter if Jesus is going out and helping out a person that really needs help a lot. They're very upset about this. Same thing with Jesus when he goes in the house of a prostitute. They can't look at this and get joyful and think, this is awesome, Jesus, go hang out with prostitutes. They were actually very frustrated. Same thing when they went out to John the Baptist. They're looking at all these people, very excited, and they're very frustrated because in their mind they're thinking, gosh, these people are showing all this excitement. They don't need to show all this excitement. We're already in the club. Kind of an interesting thing. This happens all throughout history. All right? And the point that I would make is that these guys show up on the scene. They're frustrated. They're grumbling. They're com- complaining. It says, and he was gone into the house to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. So that's the real issue. They look at Zacchaeus and they think, this guy is totally unworthy of any type of care, mercy, love, or grace at all. That we should treat Zacchaeus the way he treats us and we'll despise him. So the problem is, the rub of the story is, is Jesus, this religious leader himself, who actually loves people, unlike the other religious leaders who hate everybody, Jesus goes and hangs out with this sinner, spends some time with this sinner, and then it says, and Zacchaeus stood and he said to him, Lord, behold, uh, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor, and if I have ever defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And then Jesus said to him, today, surely salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. I love this. Here's what Jesus does. He looks at this guy, Zacchaeus, who's wealthy, who's a tax collector, who is a sinner. And he says, you believe me. You are a son of Abraham. Can you imagine how frustrating this would have been to the religious leaders that are like, we're the sons of Abraham. Jesus is like, nope. You, evil, sinful, short dude, are the real son of Abraham. And I love you. I love you. Because you trust me. Take a look at the next slide. This is an interesting story. It takes place in John's gospel, and Jesus confronts basically the religious leaders. He's having this long dialogue with them, and basically the whole issue is about who is our dad? Who's our father? The whole issue, the whole argument is, is really traced back to religious leaders saying, Abraham's our father, God is our father, and Jesus' whole pushback is, no, they're not. God's not your father, and Abraham's not your father. Actually, you do have a father, so you're not orphans entirely. Satan's your father. So here's what he says. Jesus answered these religious leaders. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus' whole point is, really, you guys need me. Problem is, you guys are slaves. You guys are slaves to sin. You've never been free. What you really need is you need me. You need my help. You see this? Jesus actually comes to the religious leaders like, look, you guys need me. You need my help. Jesus would say the same thing to religious people today. Do you think they hear? Do you think they respond? Do they fall on their knees and worship Jesus? Are they happy to respond to the, to the pushback of Jesus? Are they ready to worship? Are they ready to confess sin? Are they ready to fall on their faces and love Jesus? No, because they're deeply offended. Nobody should ever tell a religious person they're a sinner. You get in trouble. That's what happened. Jesus called these guys sinners, said that you guys need help. You're slaves. I'm here to help you. I came from God. I left glory to come to this trailer park called Earth because I love you. And I love all people that are hurting and broken. And I want to help you. So I'm here to help you out. They're deeply offended by this. They basically take great offense to this. And they push back all the way to the point where they kill Jesus. You call religious people sinners, they want to kill you. 
They might kill you physically, but most of the time they might just kill you with their tongue. They'll lash out. They'll say negative things about you. They'll send you nasty emails. They'll blog about you. Send out Facebook updates about how horrible you are. They want to kill. Because that's what religious people who are very arrogant and self-righteous and see themselves as not needing Jesus love to do. They push back on their own terms. Jesus goes on and says in verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. So he acknowledges. Like, I understand. According to DNA, you guys can trace your lineage back, all the way back to Abraham. He says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen of my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So the drum's rolling a little bit in the background because the question kind of leaves you uh, in, the, in your mind thinking, well, who's their father? Take a look at the next slide. It says, and they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. So they immediately retort and say, our father is Abraham. Um, I actually cut this out in the, in the passage because I didn't have a lot of room. But they, go, they actually push back with Jesus. They're like, at least we know who our dad is. You don't even know who your dad is. Your mom's a whore. You know that? That's what they say. Can you imagine that? Religious leaders, can you imagine a good pastor, preacher, loves Jesus, being like, your mama is a whore. That's what they say to Jesus. Like, we know who our dad is. You don't even know who your dad is. Because your mom, everybody talks about her. They gossip about her because your mom is a whore. You don't even know who your dad is. And Jesus goes on as he talks to these guys. He's like, Jesus then says to them, if you guys were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. So Jesus' whole point is that, look, if if you guys are actually sons of Abraham, you don't act anything like Abraham. Because if Abraham were here today, he'd fall on his face and worship me. If Abraham was here today, he would love me. If Abraham were here today, he would honor me. So you guys aren't honoring me. You're not worshiping me. You're not loving me. You're wanting to kill me. So in reality, even though you may claim to be sons of Abraham, your actions completely speak something other than that. And he says, you are doing the works of your father. And they immediately jump back in again and already anticipating where probably Jesus is going. And they reply back to Jesus before he gets a chance to finish. And they say, we have one father. It's God. So it's as if these guys sort of make one final attempt to grasp at the highest supreme authority. They're like, look, Abraham's our father, but even more than that, God's our father. Can you imagine religious leaders looking at the son of God and saying, we're actually the sons of God, not you. That's what these guys are doing. It's kind of ironic. Jesus then said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. I came from God. But you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with truth, because there is no truth in him. So the point that Jesus wants to make to these guys is that even though you claim to be legitimate heirs of Abraham, sons of Abraham, you're nothing like Abraham. Abraham would have worshipped me and loved me. You don't. You want to kill me. So you guys actually are not sons of Abraham. Actually, you guys are sons of the devil. The devil wants to murder. The devil wants to hurt and harm and kill. That's exactly what you guys want to do. So at the end of the day, Jesus is basically saying, you guys aren't sons of Abraham. You guys are actually sons of the devil. So the point, again, sort of comes home to this, and I wrap it up with this, that this whole idea that Paul is trying to convey is that the true sons and daughters of Abraham are not those that are just born into it, that are not those that just do certain religious traditions, maybe that Abraham did, for example, circumcision, or what Abraham's later descendants did, which would be keep the law, or the traditions, or holy days. True sons and daughters of Abraham 
relate to God and are made right with God on the same way that Abraham related and was made right with God. That is confidence in God. When God speaks, they take God at his word. They love God. In this particular case, in the New Testament, Jesus is like, the greatest way for you to show honor and respect to the Father is to honor what the Father loves and what the, what the Father respects. In this case, it's the Son. That's Jesus' whole point. You want to be in right relationship with God? Then you need to love, honor, and respect what God loves, honor, honors, and respects the most. And in this case, it's the Son. God loves the Son. God adores this boy. He adores the Son. He's, he's, God loves the Son so much that the whole point of the matter is that those who actually despise the Son, don't love the Son, add to the Son's standards and demands. Actually, God the Father says, one day I will bring great judgment upon those who hate and have judged my Son. But those who love my Son, I will receive. I will shower with blessing and honor and privilege and praise and glory because they love my Son. The final thing that we want to look at is this. Is really the scripture that sort of gets spoken to Abraham. And Paul summarizes it in Galatians chapter uh, 3 verse 8. He says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith was preached, or he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So he's going to appeal to a scripture that was taken literally almost 2,500 years prior to the date that Paul wrote this. And he's basically going to say, look, the scripture actually goes all the way back and foretells of a time when God was going to move and work in the lives of Gentile people. That from the very beginning, God had always had in his mind a purpose to save all people that put their confidence in God. Not just Jews, not, that, not just those that belong to a particular tribe, but all people that honor the Son. So here's Paul's point. He says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul's whole point is that this is the way God works. He's always worked this way. Christianity is not an addendum to Judaism. It's not an addition. It's not a footnote. It's not even making a brand new religion the way some think. It's actually a proper continuation. It's a completion of everything that began 2,500 years prior to when Jesus came, died, rose again from the dead. It's just a constant continuation. This is why I love when I meet Jews that meet Jesus. They call themselves completed Jews. I love that. In a lot of ways, we're completed Gentiles. So here's the final thing I want to finish with is this. Next slide. Is I want to take a look at three specific things that get communicated as to how we're to be made complete. Basically, religion comes along and says this. Do these things for God and you will be made complete. Do these things for God. Read your Bible. Go to church. Help out. Serve. Give your money. Do all these things for God and you will be made complete. See, the problem is, is that there's nothing wrong with reading your Bible. I think it's great. I think we should read your Bible. I think if you're a Christian, you should want to read your Bible. But the problem is that we don't read our Bible to be made right with God. We read our Bible because we're already made right with God. We read our Bible because we love God. God demonstrated great kindness and affection to us. And so we, we read our Bibles because we want to know more about this great love of God. But if you have this subtle change in your heart that says, the way I'm made right with God is I read my Bible. Then what you will do is that you will fight as hard as you can to read your Bible every day. Problem is you're going to fail at some point. You're going to not read your Bible. And the question that I want to ask you is when you don't read your Bible, how do you feel with God? 
Do you feel really far from God? Do you feel like God's angry with you? If you do, it's a very good indication of the fact that you are trying to be made right with God based upon what you do for him. You are falling into a subtle form of religion, just like the the Galatian people were. It's a subtle form of religion. you got to be careful about this. Because what happens oftentimes in Christianity, we come out of one form of slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to bad habits that lead us away from God, that are dehumanizing to other people. And people end up getting religious, and now they become slaves to new things. Slaves, I gotta read my Bible. Slaves, I gotta go to prayer meeting. Slaves, I gotta be religious. Slaves, I can't, you know, uh, go to an R-rated movie. Slaves, I can't wear certain clothing. Slaves, to whatever. We always make all these new rules and regulations. Slaves, to I gotta go down and preach the gospel every week. I gotta lead people to Jesus. If I'm not leading people to Jesus, I remember sitting down with a gal not too long ago. Went to the church locally. She sat down. She was bombed because someone basically tracked her down in her church and looked at her and says how many people you've led to Christ this past week she's like I haven't led any I got two kids I got to spend time with them and I love them they're small and you know tiny little kids they need me and she was basically made to feel bad because she's not going out preaching the gospel on Thursday night and hanging out with people shame on that that's just a whole other rule she felt radically just destroyed and had all this new form of law and legalism stacked upon her. That didn't lead her to freedom. That didn't lead her to praise and worship Jesus. That actually made her afraid of Jesus. So religion says, do these things for God and you'll be complete. The next one is basically secularism says, do these things for yourself and you'll be complete. So you can call this humanism. You can call this worldliness. I don't care what you call it. I just call it secularism. Do these things for yourself and you'll be complete. Again, the issue is we're all looking for a way to become complete. Religion says do these things for God, you'll be complete. Secularism says do these things for yourself, you'll be complete. Work out, get on a good eating uh, uh, diet, uh, help other people, invest your money well, recycle. You can work out with the thigh master right there. Buy a house um, and, you know, do things that can actually benefit and help other people that are going to also end up helping benefit yourself. Make wise choices, make wise decisions that can actually promote yourself and move yourself forward because by doing these things, then you will be made complete. There's nothing wrong with being healthy. There's nothing wrong with eating well. And there's nothing wrong with uh, recycling. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great to keep a small carbon footprint. That's one of the reasons why I drive an SUV. And at the end of the day, I think it's important just to realize that all these things are fine and good. But if these are the means by which you're trying to be made complete... You're going to be miserable, and you're going to find they have empty promises that can never truly satisfy. But here's what the gospel says. The gospel basically comes along and says, this is what God has done for you so that you can become complete. It's radically different than what religion says. Religion says, do these things for God so you can become complete. Secularism says, do these things for yourself so you can be complete. The gospel says, this is what God's done for you. So you can become complete. This is why we love Jesus. Do you know that? This is why the gospel is so good. It's good news. The word gospel literally means good news. Religion? It's not good news. It's horrible news. Having to do all these things, have all these things stacked up on your back, do, do, act, fulfill, complete, so that you can be complete with God, you're gonna fail at some point, and then you're gonna feel like a miserable failure. 
Secularism says do all these things, live according to the standards and the value systems of the day. Whatever those value systems are, and again, like I said earlier, every culture, every community, every part on the planet has a different set of system, uh, systems of values depending upon where you live. But you can't live according to those things all the time. You'll fail. But the gospel, so all those two areas at the beginning, they're really bad news at the end of the day. You can't fulfill those things. You can't live according to them. You'll fail. And then when you fail, then you feel horrible. You'll feel very incomplete. But the gospel says this is what God, in great kindness, affection, love, justice, mercy, did for you. Jesus died for you. This is why we said, like we said last week, only through the gospel can we say something like, God loved us and gave himself for us. Idols don't love us. Idols don't make sacrifices for us. They make a sacrifice for them. Idols don't give us life. They steal our life. Idols don't leave us feeling clean. They leave us feeling defiled. Because they rape, steal, kill, and destroy. Because at the end of the day, they're all part of Satan's deception to destroy you. Because at the end of the day, he hates God and he hates everything that God loves. God loves you. He loves you. He wants to set you free. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to partake of communion together. We partake of communion as a way of reminding us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We'll confess sin. If you're here, you're not a Christian. The best thing I can encourage you with is without taking communion, you don't need communion. What you need is you need Jesus. The communion just speaks of the narrative of what Jesus did for us. What you really need is you just need Jesus. I encourage you to call upon God, to ask him to cleanse you, to wash you. God will cleanse you and wash you. If you're a Christian, you're living in sin, there's things that you need to confess and repent of, do so. If you're a Christian, at the end of the day, your sin will not damn you. If you're a Christian, because God already condemned his son, but freed you. But sin will mess up your relationship. This is why sin is bad. One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said sin in a non-believer is bad, but in a lot of ways sin in the life of a believer is actually even worse because sin in the life of a believer actually wounds love. You're in a relationship. God loves you. He loves you. He paid a very big price to set you free and for us to revert back into sinful habits and proclivities is something that's that God doesn't want us to be living towards, but to move away from. To find freedom in Jesus is where God wants us to press in. So I'm gonna pray, we'll respond, we'll partake of communion, we'll sing to Jesus, we'll confess sin to Jesus, and uh, then we'll dismiss you guys. God, I thank you for the cross. Thank you for what Jesus did for us. Lord, we lay our lives down even right now, and we just confess sin to you. We thank you, Lord, for what you provided for us through Jesus, through the cross. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for. We've had a lot of sin forgiven. God, all of us came out of our own little Babylons. All of us had our own little idols that we are bowing down to and worshiping, just like Abraham. And yet you called us just like you did Abraham. And you covenanted with us just like you do with Abraham.
We don't deserve it. Yet it's out of great love and affection that you did that for us, to us, because you love us. So we give back worship and honor and praise to you now.